0: would have thought, 12 months ago, that we would have seen all of the things we've seen this year? A war in Ukraine was pretty much unthinkable at the time. The bull market in everything seemed to be in a buy the dip moment. And here we are, 12 months later, quite a bit further down in the stock market, way, way down in speculative assets, and it almost renders all idea of prediction null and void. Like, when you look back, who would have predicted everything that occurred this year? And I would say nobody. Like, maybe some people got some parts. Maybe some people saw war in Ukraine coming. Maybe some people saw a you know clawback in the stock market sure fair enough but did anybody see you know all of that i say to you nobody so this whole idea of prediction it almost gets called into a like years like this frankly decades like this i mean look at 2020 if all your outlooks of in december 2019 how many would have saw in the next year what happened there with the coronavirus I mean, that was just starting to make the headlines around December 30th, December 31st, 2019. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? So like this whole idea of Outlook, it's fun. You know, trying to predict the future, it's fun. But I'm not quite sure what that gives us. What I do think is quite worthwhile, though, is trying to understand what's going on, which is why we've invited Paul from the Serious Report back on the program And he definitely has a pretty commanding sense of what is going on geopolitically and also in terms of energy, which is inextricably linked, as we have seen over and over, on this show and throughout history, okay? And natural resources are back front and center, as we've been saying here for a couple of years, after being ignored, you know, or kind of diminished in the last decade They have now reasserted their importance on the world stage. And so welcome back, everyone, in our final show before Christmas here, two more shows in the year. We have a very nice treat for you, a feast for you from Paul from The Serious Report. Now, I should say Paul is very controversial, so I don't agree with everything Paul says. Paul, to me, has far too favorable a view of China. You know, a lot of people out there think that China is preparing for war right now. And like some pretty interesting, not just, you know, some war hawks out of the U.S., but, you know, interesting people who analyze Chinese media. And when they look at President Xi Jinping's uh, war cabinet, the whole group of people that he's put in place, a lot of people suggest, is preparations for war. So I don't really have as benign a view of China, say Paul does. So, all to say, take what Paul says, like anything else you would, a story and a very, I would say, informed story, but you don't have to agree with it. Because uh, again, he, he can be pretty controversial. So, again, this is anecdotal, like all news. This is not scientific. You know, this is not scientific. You know, and that's what's so great about science. It gives us the numbers. You know, we're kind of fortunate. In our discipline here, in the mining sector, we actually have quite a bit of science here. So maybe that should also be one of our New Year's resolutions, is to bring on maybe a few more scientists. You know, it could be fun to bring on a few more geologists. We want a little bit of everybody here. I've put a great effort to give us as much variety as possible. Over the holidays, we're going to have a couple of great interviews from the Canadian Mining Symposium, lined up, ready for you. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on here. Looking at the big world out there, the EU has just put a cap on natural gas. After putting on a cap on oil and the world not coming to an end, they have tried natural gas. Seems like a pretty dangerous move to me because they're not exactly in a position to start dictating natural gas prices from my point of view. They seem to be in a pretty tight position So that is happening. And also in Germany here, Intel delays German chip plant and wants more funds. That was an article I saw on Bloomberg. So you're seeing another plant delay. We had Volkswagen. The Volkswagen CEO come out a few weeks ago. We brought you that story. Now Intel has delayed a plant in Germany. So I'm not sure how many of these they can start to – Deal with and who would want to open a plant in Germany? As I discussed with Paul, you know, just because prices aren't 10x anymore and they're only two or three X, they're still two or three X. And that is not good enough for a lot of industry. Why would they set up somewhere where it's they're going to be paying at least two to three X more for their energy? The answer is they're not going to. Another really interesting story that came out was this idea, I saw it on Bloomberg as well, great government will pay food bills for millions of citizens and they're going to pay something like 10% of the food bills. You know, I guess that will supposedly take care of inflation. And then we see other stories. Again, I'm mentioning some of these stories now simply because we don't have time to go into all this stuff. So first, China lodged a complaint with the WTO over Trump's tariffs on aluminum and steel against the US and the WTO Ruled in favor of China. And now Russia is lodging a WTO complaint over the EU's Kaliningrad blockade. So you're seeing, you know, as the world bifurcates, I'm not sure they care if the WTO rules in their favor. Like, I think they think they can win. But I think their point is if they win and nothing happens, it weakens that institution. So I think they're more than happy to lodge their complaint. And if they win, they don't need to get anything back. They just go, look at how worthless this institution is. As we mentioned in a previous story, President Trump defanged the WTO, so there is no appeal process. So anyways, there is a ton to get to here. Uh, we're going to start with this WTO story and the U.S.'s response. And another story that was catching a lot of people's attention, Zoltan Pozar from Credit Suisse, who is a pretty respected uh, individual in the commodity space says that if russia accepts gold for oil the gold price could double to thirty six hundred dollars so a potential response according to zoltan pozar and he's saying it's not improbable so thank you for joining us this year on what has been a fascinating year in the news particularly in natural resources so thank you for joining us for the ride A merry christmas and a happy holidays to you and your loved ones. If you want to find us online, find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple podcasts and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to the news and turning to the website world trade organization on thin ice with metals tariff ruling, according to the U.S. trade chief and This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. The World Trade Organization, quote, is getting itself on very, very thin ice, end quote, by ruling that the U.S. violated trade rules with Trump-era steel and aluminum tariffs, according to Trade Representative Catherine Tai, adding that the finding, quote, challenges the integrity of the system. So the U.S. did not like the WTO ruling. The ruling issued earlier this month, quote, really challenges the integrity of the system, Ty said Monday. That's because it, quote, gets deep into creating requirements and parameters for what is or is not a legitimate national security decision, end quote. Well, it seems to me that they do have to make that judgment. Otherwise, everybody will say any tariff is a national security decision, is my first thought. Let's continue here. The organization, quote, Should not get into the business of second guessing the national security decisions that are made by sovereign governments. Well, I think they have to. Quote, it is the responsibility of governments to bring integrity to their decisions on national security. End quote. Again, we are back to expediency. This may work for the U.S. today, but next time, When Russia or China or Indonesia or whomever is saying this is for national security, and you can always make an argument for national security, then it will go against you. Again, the short-sightedness is mind-boggling. Let's continue, though. Let's hear what they have to say. On December 9th, the WTO dispute settlement panel said the 25% tariffs on global steel imports and 10% import taxes on global aluminum – instituted under former President Donald Trump, violated the body's rules. And the sheer audaciousness of Alcoa coming out like a month ago to try and stop any, you know, Russian aluminum and not even giving, frankly, a clear reason from what I could tell, although I didn't look deeply, so to be fair. But here they're already getting, you know, tariffs In favor of them. And now they so, anyways, let's continue on here. It said U.S. national security claims, quote, are not justified, so this is the WTO, and quote, because they were, quote, not taken in time of war or other emergency in international relations. It sounds like they have a pretty clear definition of what a national security claim is. In other words, it's a decision taken in time of war or other emergency in international relations. The U.S. strongly rejects the report's findings and won't remove its duties as a result of the rulings, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative said at the time. I don't understand how this helps the U.S. other than a short-term win on these tariffs. Tai on Monday reinforced the rejections of the finding. Quote, our response is very much focused on the reasoning that is in that panel report, Tai said in an interview at the Council of Foreign Relations in Washington. But it is a very challenging place to be to have unelected, not really accountable decision makers in Geneva second-guess processes that are run through a government like ours, which is democratic, she said. Well, you know, who knows, but it doesn't look very good. Again, this looks like expediency writ large. Once again, like it's the, to be expected now, I guess. And like 2019 was that a time of war. And aluminum, tariffs on aluminum, I'm just not sure how that helps you, like, from a war perspective. If anything, you want cheaper aluminum so you can build more fighter jets, but I'm sure they have their reasoning. Continuing on, Indonesia appeals WTO ruling on nickel ore export ban dispute, Bloomberg News via mining.com. Indonesia has filed an appeal against the World Trade Organization to assert its right to ban exports of metal ores. The appeal was sent to WTO members on Monday, according to the notice on the organization's website. WTO had earlier ruled in favor of the European Union's complaint that Indonesia's ban on nickel ore exports was hurting its steel industries. The dispute started in 2021 when the EU asked for the establishment of a panel, saying that the Southeast Asia's country's requirements for minerals to be processed locally and its failure to promptly publish the policy are inconsistent with WTO rules. And frankly, here, like, if you want to process your metals locally, I don't see why you shouldn't be able to. So the WTO is trying to force them to export their nickel. A panel of WTO experts last month urged the country, which is the world's largest nickel ore producer, to bring its measures in line with WTO obligations. The ruling could jeopardize Indonesia's bid to push the resource-rich nation up the commodity value chain and develop local metal refineries. It just doesn't look good. So they're not allowed to build their own metal refineries, according to the WTO? And you wonder why the global South distrusts the West. Continuing on, Canada's mining minister wants mineral projects built within a decade. Bloomberg News via mining.com. Canada's mining minister wants critical minerals project built in less than a decade, spurred on by government efforts to cut red tape. I'm sure music to the ears of many miners... In Canada, quote, we need to get to the point where we can get these mines from concept to production, certainly within a decade, and ideally less than that. End quote. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said in a Monday phone interview, Wilkinson's comments come days after his ministry published a critical mineral strategy that pledged to review Canada's approval process for developing mines. Government estimates show it can take up to 25 years for a mining project to become operational. I mean, it reaches the point of absurdity at that point, 25 years. Wilkinson said he expects policy recommendations on streamlining processes within the next 12 months. The time it would take to build a mine has been a source of concern for mining companies worldwide, given that lengthy approval processes pose investment risks and heightened costs and is top of mind for many mining CEOs. The head of Vancouver-based tech resources, for instance, said last week that the Canadian government could help the industry with an approval process that ensures projects get done in a timely fashion. And we have a quote from CEO Jonathan Price, who said on Thursday, quote, If we are going to bring supply online at the pace that the world needs to electrify, we need to shorten those timelines. Getting the approvals pathway right is very important. We have to look for opportunities to accelerate so we can bring new production to market more quickly. Well... The message is getting out. We have been saying it for years here on this podcast. Interesting story with Ivanhoe Mines here. Ivanhoe Mines hits back at Century Globe and Mail reports on police search of Vancouver office. And this is by a staff writer with Mining.com. Ivanhoe Mines issued a statement Monday in response to media reports on December 15th that police had searched the company's Vancouver office seeking information on $2.7 million in bank transfers from Ivanhoe to a Swiss bank account in connection with contracts for its Congolese mining operations. U.S.-based investigative organization The Century published a report titled Gaming the System, How a Canadian Mining Giant Undermined the Law in the DRC and a Subsequent Story Ran in the Globe and Mail. Some of the documents authorized for seizure were related to three bank transfers from Ivanhoe to the Swiss bank account from 2015 to 2018 of Stuckey Technologies, a Swiss engineering firm, to work with Congo's state electricity company on hydropower supplies for Ivanhoe's Kamoa Kakula copper project in the DRC, the Globe and Mail reported. The headline stated that the Ivanhoe Mines office in Vancouver had been searched by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Canada's federal police force. So, interesting. Tesla may announce $800 million to $1 billion investment in Mexico plant in coming days, according to Reuters. Yeah, and Mexico makes a lot of sense, eh? I mean, Tesla has, I believe, plants in China, at least one, and they have one in Germany, and so they are probably looking for something a little safer right now. Electric car maker Tesla could announce the construction of a gigafactory in the northern Mexican state of Nuevo León as soon as Friday with an initial investment of $800 million to $1 billion, local newspaper Reforma reported on Monday. The total investment taken into account future expansions could eventually reach $10 billion, sources told the newspaper. The announcement would follow CEO Elon Musk's visit to the state, which borders Texas, in October. A source told Reuters then that Musk had met with Nuevo Leon Governor Samuel Garcia and U.S. Ambassador to Mexico Ken Salazar – The Mexican Gigafact, planned on the outskirts of the city Monterey, would start by building components for current Tesla models, a source told Reforma, later possibly building a new model at a lower cost than other factories. And continuing on, Germany pushes back on Putin's blackmail with gas terminal. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Germany opened its first state-chartered liquefied natural gas vessel as Europe's largest economy races to replace Russian gas amid an energy crunch and freezing temperature. And we have a quote from Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who said in a short speech on Saturday in Wilhelmshaven on the North Sea coast to mark the inauguration, quote, as of today, Germany and the EU would become a great deal more secure and independent. Scholz said Russian President Vladimir Putin in pursuing the invasion of Ukraine calculated that he could pressure Germany and the rest of Europe by making energy a political weapon and cutting off gas supplies. Quote, he was wrong, Scholz said, we won't be blackmailed. Opening the terminal marks a milestone in Germany's efforts to become more energy independent from Russia. Quote, this is now the new pace in Germany with which we're pushing ahead with infrastructure. Schultz said, the project was accelerated with the help of a special law and realized in less than 200 days. That was remarkably fast by German standards. Infrastructure projects often take years, if not decades, to finish due to lengthy approval procedures and frequent local opposition. Quote, this is now the new pace in Germany with which we're pushing ahead with infrastructure, Schultz said. So kind of mirrors the Canada story. It just goes to show the West, when it wants to act fast, it can, but it really needs a reason. Otherwise, it's, you know, pretty slow. And this is interesting. Following an EU leaders' summit in Brussels on Thursday, Schultz said he would prefer a cap set so high that it will, quote, never be relevant. Sounds like he's worried about this price cap, and this is on LNG. Schultz said other EU member states should also benefit from Germany's push into LNG. Berlin is ready to help its, quote, European neighbors who have no coasts, but whose economies are very closely linked to Germany, he said. And finally, quote, more terminals will follow on the German North Sea and Baltic Sea coasts in the coming weeks and months in Lubman, Brunsbüttel, and Stade, Schultz said by the end of next year, we will probably have an import capacity of more than 30 billion cubic meters of gas. That alone corresponds to well over half of the total amount of gas that flowed through the pipelines from Russia to Germany last year. So making all these projects, you'll end up with half the gas, and one has to ask, how much more does it cost? Maybe it's the same, maybe it's cheaper, but probably not. And a few more stories here. Germany entirely dependent on imports for 14 critical raw materials. According to a study, Mr. Reuters via mining.com, Germany is highly dependent on imports for many crucial raw materials and often relies entirely on other countries to meet demand, according to a study seen by Reuters, which warned that much of this reliance was on authoritarian regimes. The DIW Research Institute identified 30 raw materials as particularly critical and placed Germany's dependence on imports at 100% for 14 of them. For another three, dependency was ranked at 95%, so totally dependent. So you can read the whole story on mining.com. Continuing on, the northern miner, Perpetua awarded up to $24.8 million under U.S. Defense Production Act. It's by Jackson Chen. Perpetua Resources announced on Monday that its Idaho-based subsidiary has received a technology investment of up to $24.8 million under Title III of the Defense Production Act. So that is starting to happen. The objective of the funding issued by the Air Force Research Laboratory is to complete the environmental and engineering studies necessary for Perpetua to obtain the required permits to sustain the domestic production of antimony trisulfide, which is essential to national defense as a key component for munitions. The U.S. currently has no mined supply of antimony trisulfide. Perpetua is planning to reestablish a domestic supply of the critical mineral Antimony as a byproduct from its Stibnite gold project located in central Idaho. So, very interesting. Continuing on, another story from the northern miner. Panama orders suspension of First Quantum's giant copper mine. And this was a big story. This is by Cecilia Gemazmi. Panama's government has ordered First Quantum minerals to halt operations at its Cobre Panama copper mine after it failed to agree to terms for a new contract with a Canadian miner. The move, unusual among Latin American countries, came after First Quantum missed a Wednesday night deadline to ink a new royalty deal that had been in the works since September 2021. The miner said on Friday it was doing everything possible to support its operations in Panama, quote, including through all available legal means, end quote. It also expressed disappointment at what it considers, quote, unnecessary actions by the government. According to Ebrahim Asfat, lawyer and part of Panama's negotiating team, the mine closure is not immediate. Quote, what the national government decided was to order each ministry to take the necessary steps to maintain the copper mine with adequate care and maintenance, he told Echo TV. Wow, that almost sounds like a nationalization. So the national government is taking the necessary steps to maintain the copper mine. An agreement was reached in January with the company committing to up its royalty payments for the copper mine. It also accepted to give Panama between 12 and 16 percent of its gross profit, which would replace the previous two percent revenue royalty. First Quantum agreed as well as to start paying 25% corporation tax, from which it was previously exempted, until its investments at the mine were recovered. Sealing the deal dragged on for months until President Laurentino Cortizo's administration set a Wednesday night deadline for First Quantum to ink the new contract. The miner then sent a new proposal that fundamentally changed the deal's economics, the Ministry of Commerce and Industry said on Thursday morning. The point of contention seems to be a clause that would make the Vancouver-based miner pay a minimum of $375 million in royalties to the state. According to Bloomberg, First Quantum had been pushing for an exception in the case of much lower metal price and profit. Interesting. And finally, just a headline here, world's coal consumption set to breach new record this year, Bloomberg News via mining.com. And just a paragraph, coal usage looks like to increase by 1.2% in 2022, surpassing 8 billion tons in a single year for the first time, according to an IEA report published Friday. It also said consumption will likely remain at that level until 2025, as declines in advanced economies are offset by demand in emerging Asian markets such as China and India. You can read the whole story on mining.com. Those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's just take a quick look at the 10-year U.S. Treasury bond for a little bit of context. It is yielding 3.684%. That is 0.23% higher than last week. So after dropping for about four weeks, now it is going back up a little bit. Turning to our precious metals, gold is trading at $1,805.95 per ounce. That is $14 lower than last week. Silver is trading at $23.69 per ounce. That is 40 cents lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $999.70 per ounce. That is $46 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $1,687.99 per ounce. That is $277 lower than last week. So palladium falling out of bed here, interestingly. Again, that's sixteen eighty-seven per ounce. Turning to industrial metals, copper is trading at $3.73 per pound. That is $0.12 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is trading down $0.04 cents at $1.07 per pound. Lead is trading down $0.02 cents at $0.98 cents per pound. Nickel is trading down $0.45 cents at $13.09 per pound. And tin is trading... 43 cents lower at $10.77 per pound. Cobalt is a penny lower at $23.24 per pound. And zinc is 5 cents lower at $1.42 per pound. Zooming out, it looks like all of the metals are taking a break here, and palladium in particular. Overall, though, I mean, I don't think we can c- complain with silver at twenty-three sixty-nine. dollars maybe a little bit of a consolidation after having quite a nice run here, all the way from $18 a couple of months ago. So across the board, a little bit of risk off in the markets, and those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have our quarterly interview with Paul from The Serious Report, who goes into, really, it's all about trust, actually, this episode. And the loss of trust really is what we kind of determined to be one of the big themes of the year. But this interview also deals with multipolarity, energy, war, and gold. So we're taking a look at the big takeaways from 2022 with Paul from the Sirius Report. And again, Paul can be controversial in his thinking, but we put him on because I believe he is being genuine. And I think he gives a credible story to back up his views, whatever we might think of them. So I hope you enjoy this extended interview with Paul from the Sirius Report, and I will see you on the other side. Joining me today, I am very pleased to welcome back Paul. From the Sirius Report to the Northern Minor Podcast. His appearances have produced some of our most listened to shows. And he is controversial, but here we like to hear all sides, and we are glad to welcome him back. Paul, great to have you. Well, thanks for having me back, Adrian. It's a pleasure. So as we are here in our, you know, the end of the year, so many things have happened this year. What is it that stands out to you this year? What is the message of 2022? From your perspective?
1: Well, yeah, it's a great question. I think in very broad terms, this is like a a, a million foot view. It's the ongoing kind of what I've referred to for a long time as the demise of unipolarity and the rise of multipolarity. And of course, the irony is that from the West's perspective is they thought the Ukraine war would actually lead to the demise of multipolarity and the strengthening of unipolarity in the sense that The world would galvanize around the West. They would isolate Russia, which, of course, hasn't happened from the Global South's perspective. They also envisaged that uh, that the Ukraine war would crush Russia economically, financially. It would lead to the end of Putin as president. It would all be resolved relatively quickly or extremely quickly. And if Russia is no longer a player in multipolarity, China will just quietly disappear and that will be the end of multipolarity. I mean, am not saying that's why the war happened. That's just a consequence of the thought process. And of course it's completely failed. In fact the Ukraine war has highlighted the vulnerabilities of the West, not least in terms of energy. I mean, in terms of what it's caused to price inflation which is not a secret of course, everybody knows that what it's done to produce a price inflation and correspondingly so-called CPI, for what it's worth, which is vastly underreported in terms of what it actually is anyway. And also it's highlighted vulnerabilities in terms of this supposed united front, because at the start of the war, everyone seemed to be pulling together for this greater cause of of defeating Russia and Ukraine, and, and now Europe's sort of at war with itself, there's massive disagreements internally about how this war should be prosecuted, what the economic effects are, the financial effects, and you've got policy decisions uh, where there being been serious disagreement between Europe and the United States because they see this Inflation Reduction Act as actually you're harming European industry enormously. And also, it's highlighted the vulnerabilities of the West, why if you don't have cheap Russian energy or a viable alternative, you've got huge problems. It's going to seriously affect your economy. We've also seen the vulnerability of why the West ultimately thinks, particularly the United States, but also Britain and to some degree, the European Central Bank in raising interest rates and, and thinking it's going to cure a multitude of ills. In terms of uh, our economy and, fi- and the financial system, and it's not going to do anything of the sort because they don't understand why we have inflation. It's structurally based. It's not caused by overheating economy. We know if the economy is not overheating, it's just a complete myth to, to suggest otherwise. So in a very broad sense, it's highlighted the challenges the West faces, how the West is not equipped to have implemented the sanctions it did and didn't think about the ramifications of what that would mean they haven't thought about the ramifications of well what happens if Russia wins the war and and effectively in inverted commerce and we lose the war what is the ramifications for that not just in terms of Ukraine but in a broader context and NATO I think Stoltenberg came out and sort of admitted that you know if if Russia wins then NATO's being defeated does that is he telegraphing the fact that, that, and it's very likely if Russia did win, it would be the end of NATO as it exists now. I mean, this is going to have far-reaching geopolitical implications in the process. And from the flip side, they completely underestimated Russia's resilience because they hadn't paid attention to what Russia's done since 2014 when they had the May They didn't understand the ramifications of cutting Russia's central bank. We've said this before out of SWIFT and what the, how the the global south would look at this and go, hang on, we could be next and we don't trust you anymore. The basis of trust is you're not going to suddenly decide you don't like what we're doing for whatever reason and you're just going to cut us out of SWIFT, steal our, you know, uh, forex reserves or whatever else you might do and, and destroy our country economically, financially and societally. And they didn't also realize that the, the global south would say, you know, we're not here to judge what's going on in Europe with this war. We we just want, as the Indians said, we want cheap energy. And if Russia provides it, we're going to buy it. And therefore there is alternative markets for Russia to exploit. And at some point the West may find that it never has access to that energy ever again. And it didn't think, well, what are the consequences of that? So in a very broad sense, Ukraine war has accelerated this process and of the ongoing demise of unipolarity, but it's also accelerated multipolarity. Where nations are going, we need to be dollarized. We need to to, to trade in local currencies and avoid the, the the machinations of the dollar as much as possible. We also need to accelerate our plans to to either integrate into the Belt Road Initiative or our own alliances and start to to develop our own countries outside, swift outside the door, and the realisation that we are extremely vulnerable inside that system, and therefore it's accelerated these developments, not least as we've seen with Saudi and China, which has been in the works for years, but they finally come out, so we have a comprehensive strategic partnership, and all the developments that that entails, not just in terms of, China and Saudi Arabia, but the broader Gulf Cooperation Council, and in a wider context, the Arab nations in North Africa as well. So and for me, if you want to sum up a year, it, that's the process is ongoing, but it's been ironically accelerated by the Ukraine war for the reasons I've just highlighted.
0: Yeah, beautifully put, Paul. And you bring up so many issues here. One of the biggest, I think, that you that at least the takeaway from what you said for me, is this idea of trust and how it seems with events like the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which is kind of has by America, and then we see also like the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline, whomever did that, but it does seem to be you know, we could say with some degree of plausibility that that was somehow a plot based in the West, like the global South looks at these acts that are say done by the U S and England, let's say against Germany, the inflation reduction act, you know, which is against Europe. They're doing this just inside the West. What is the global South supposed to think, or what is Saudi Arabia, you know, supposed to do as we were discussing before this podcast, like once Saudi Arabia's oil is gone. Are they still going to have that security guarantee? Because it looks to me, what we see over and over is that the US is acting out of expediency here, and it's leading to some very dire consequences. So to kind of wrap it all up, where does that leave European industry here? Because it doesn't seem like they have much to work with in terms of energy.
1: Yeah, it's a huge problem. I mean... Let's look at some of the sort of broader ramifications of what's particularly antagonizing and angering European industry, and particularly the Germans, because they looked at the Inflation Reduction Act when, well, actually, because you want to subsidize industry in your country, that's going to have a serious impact on our on like our car industry in the process and we won't be competitive and therefore you know we would have to start reconsidering uh, our operations being in europe and and BASF has said the same in fact they've opened up a plant in China and therefore on that basis they're looking at the United States going well, why are you trying to encourage us to move you know our of industrial operations to the united states what's going on is is this some machiavellian plan that you've you've been implementing because okay and we're not saying it is but that's the kind of uh, rightly people in europe business and trade commerce are going hang on something just doesn't feel right about this and and yes the risk is without cheap energy even if they weren't paying you know Three, four, five, six times uh, to get energy from the United States, and which they are, you know, even if it was double what Russia was charging, they still are not. A, you know, it's not economically viable, and to continue operations, say, Germany, so it starts to hollow out and deindustrialize the nation, which is a disaster for Germany. And it's not just Germany; we're talking in a broader sense, Europe. So, yeah, this is an enormous problem. And of course, Germany hasn't out the reality that it was an industrial powerhouse with traditional industries It rested on its laurels and didn't go hang on. Eventually, all industry has a limited shelf life, so we're going to have to look at alternatives, and they haven't. Now they're starting to think about it, but then who's going to invest in this? Where's the investment coming? I mean, are the Chinese going to think twice about investing because of what you did to Russia in the Ukraine? All these these thought processes are happening. And on also the, the the other sort of fundamental problem is the United States is trying to, in essence, trying to isolate Russia and, and is failing. But also they're trying to put a squeeze on China. Well, if these big uh, industrial companies in Germany, for example, go well, we're moving our operations east. That's exactly what the United States doesn't want. So in fact, they're encouraging the very thing they thought that. Oh, actually, we'll take advantage of this situation and we can maybe bring some of this industry to the United States. And Europe, of course, is furious about this and going, hang on, you're ripping us off by charging us four, five, six times for LNG. This is not acceptable. And you're absolutely right with Nord Stream 1 and 2. Okay, we don't definitively know who's responsible, but. Let's face it, if the Russians are been responsible, they'd have made huge political capital. It'd been in the news for weeks and months, and it's gone very quiet because, of course, it's not the Russians. It's somebody in the West. And logically, it's probably the United Kingdom and the US who are responsible for this. Now, Germany will know this. The rest of Europe is going to know this and go, hang on. So you're sabotaging potential for us to have cheap energy so what's your game i mean who are you actually harming here the russians or are you harming us sorry? and okay it can be one of those indirect consequences for why this has happened because again in the west nobody thinks about the consequences of anything because i think the reason the pipelines were destroyed is there was a fear the germans were going to buckle and sign a deal with the russians for energy and get Nord Stream 2 online and then have 110 billion cubic meters of gas a year going through the two pipelines. So this can't be allowed to happen. And not thinking, well, if we do this and the Germans are going to realize who's responsible, as is the rest of Europe, then they're going to start thinking privately, hang on, we can't trust you either. So this is starting to break apart this unity we spoke about at the beginning. And therefore, at some point, the question is, When does Germany look at everything and go, well, we need to stand on our own two feet? We don't want to be a vassal state of the United States. What's the internal political implications of that? And at some point, Germany is going to look at the world and go, we need to rotate east. German business wants to rotate east. It doesn't want to sever relations with the Russians. It wants to build relations more with the Chinese. And if you look in, even in Germany, the political. Sort of coalition is deeply fractured. There's people like uh, Schultz who wants to increase ties with the Chinese, and there's those who want to sabotage, they want to decouple from China. And you've got people in the European Union where there's clearly no agreement between von der and Charles Michel. They have completely different perspectives, for example, on China. So it's just fragmenting Europe's attitude to how we deal with multipolarity. And the big- industry and uh, is looking at this and going hang on you know we're the ones suffering as well you know and we're not very happy with your attitude about any of this you know okay you have a political problem with russia fine but you know, we can't be the ones who suffer the consequences and big industry and business in in Germany has a huge say and the question is at what point does that say start to have political influence and Probably privately, it already is publicly to some degree. So that's going to start fracturing relations between big business and the German government. And therefore, in a broader context, then it puts a lot of heat on the German government. And what are they going to do? Defy the European Commission and start to say, hang on, we're not going to put up with these sanctions anymore. We're going to have to start realizing this is not sustainable. And does that cause fragmentation in? The support for Ukraine in terms of financial aid. They haven't really got the weapons to give. Ukraine, I think 20 out of 27 European Union nations says we're, we're down to the bare bones. We can't really give them any military hard work because we haven't got any to get. So there's all these things that are in the melting pot. And it all, of course, revolves around Ukraine. But certainly the deindustrialization of Europe is, if they carry on the way they are, is, is almost set in stone. And Anyone who thinks for a split second of the consequences of this is it's all well and good wanting to 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 make a point and think you can you can challenge Russia and destroy them and if that's your intention, you need to think of the consequences if that fails. Well, already inside Europe privately, there's a lot of governments starting to go, hang on, we might have serious societal unrest if our entire economy is unraveled. And we have huge unemployment and the cost of living crisis and on and all the inflation. And, and is energy inflation ever going to be resolved? And Well, at the moment, it's, certainly it isn't because they can't find an alternative that's as cheap and in the same quantities as of gas as they were getting from Russia. I mean, it's all well and good going to Qatar and cheerleading this deal you've signed with them, what, for 5 billion cubic meters a year starting in four years? I mean, this is just... What are you going to do for the next four years? I mean, it's just no thought process given. So, yeah, Europe faces a situation where at some point somebody is going to turn around and go, enough is enough, because politicians might want to stand there and defend the, the war in Ukraine to the people. But if they start feeling the heat from the people, they're going to walk away from it because they're going to go, we can't afford to continue supporting something. When maybe public sentiment changes, because people are going to start going, "Well, it's all well and good you supporting the war, but we're suffering consequences you said we wouldn't suffer for and there is you know, I know in Germany there's a lot of people getting very angry because they're going, "Well, you know we're suffering way more consequences of these policy decisions and how the sanctions have blown up in our faces, and the level of tolerance is going to diminish, and okay, they might scramble through winter although that's debatable with energy. But the energy problem is not going to go away next year or the year after because they haven't got any resolution in place that deals with that problem. And therefore, you know, on that basis, there there has to come a point when politicians, they just want to survive for their own ends. Well, if they start to think the Ukraine war is a millstone around their necks, they're going to drop it and go, "We, we have to save our own skins domestically because we can't have a situation And also be extremely destabilizing to have nations that are societally, you know, seriously impaired, and when it affects tens of millions of people, say, in Germany, potentially, okay, not necessarily in reality. These are things that have to think of. Because again, they got sucked into the belief the war will be over very quickly, Russia will be crushed, and that'll be the end of it. And of course, as the war keeps dragging on, some people in, in Europe are finally waking up going, hang on a minute the longer this war drags on the more economic problems we're suffering financial problems the more actually we end up having all our arms depleted so we can, you know, we're not saying germany's going to suddenly go to war with someone but if you deplete your your ammunition and your military hardware to the point you don't have them, that poses internal security risks so this again is just this consequence of not thinking this through, not understanding the ramifications of policy decisions. And as I keep saying, if you hate Russia that much, fine. If you want to decouple from Russia, fine. But you need to find alternative energy sources that means you don't destroy your own economy, societies and financial system in the process. And nobody thought this through. And I made the tweet on February the 24th when the war started. If the West seriously wants to impose the sanctions, it's threatening to do so, it will collapse. It will destroy itself. This was an obvious statement. Anyone who thought about this would realize that was what would happen. And here we are sort of, what, nine, well, 10 months later, and suddenly people in political establishment and inside Europe are going, oh, hang on, we may have a problem here, well, These people need to have thought this through from day one because it wasn't rocket science to realize the lifeblood of a country or a continent, the Eurozone is cheap energy. Don't have cheap energy. Everything is going to cost significantly more. If your energy is five, six times more expensive, then the cost to produce something is not going to be five or six times. It's probably going to be 10 times the cost. What does that do for for, for our economies? What does that do to, in a broader context, for cost-of-living crisis? How does this affect our people? And they didn't think about this, and this is why I always come back to the point. There isn't some Machiavellian plan in the West to destroy everything. These people are, just frankly, moronic. They have no concept of what the reality is in implementing any policies. They just rush in headfirst. Largely driven by people in the West who ideologically hate Russia for whatever reason. And that's no basis to make policy decisions that you absolutely loathe and hate someone to the extent that your every daily wish is to see Russia crushed and destroyed, because you're going to make spectacularly
0: bad decisions, which the West sadly continues to make. In a sense, as we look back at this year, then maybe we could say one of the takeaways is, you know, that Russian energy was the golden goose. You know, for Germany at least, you know, is cheap energy. And now the golden goose has basically been, at the very minimum, put in a penalty box. And, you know, just as we heard the CEO of Volkswagen come out and say, We can't build this plant, we were going to build in Germany. And if energy continues to be this high, we cannot build here. Energy coming down from 10x to like 3x is still 3x. They can't compete with a 3x energy costs and which could go to 10x right back up as we're seeing with this winter get colder. So again, one of the takeaways here is is that Russian energy really was the golden goose for Germany and they killed the golden goose and there doesn't seem to be any adequate alternative and further there seems to be a doubling down when I don't know if you saw the story on tariffs that they want to put on steel and aluminum for carbon. You're just wondering, like, how are they going to build cars here if they're going to put tariffs on, say, Russian and Chinese steel? And then they're trying to get the LME to to take out Russian metal. Like, at what point here are things going to get better for European industry? You know, I'm kind of back to that same question. Well, yeah, and it's not. And let's look at the flip side to this.
1: Russia sells X amount of oil and gas to to uh, Europe. And, you know, the trust is gone. I mean, do we think Russia in the future is going to trust Europe again? Because Russia might just say you're going to renege on these contracts. I mean, you might think logically at some point in the future something is going to change. But for now, Russia's going, well, you know what? Don't have our uh, gas. Let's use gas as an example. I mean, we finally find today that, that Russia's now set a new daily record of gas supplies to China. They're massively increasing gas to China. They're going to sell gas to to the Pakistanis. They're going to sell oil to them. They're selling oil to the Indians. They're going to sell oil to the global south and gas. And in the end, they may go, well, do you know what? We're actually selling more energy than we used to sell to you in Europe. And we don't have the supply anymore because we're not going to just keep pumping endless amounts of of gas into the market, because that then will lower the gas price to the point where it might not be as economically viable. So they're going to control the amount of gas and oil, which they do in OPEC plus with the Saudis for oil. And they're going to go, well, there is no production. So yeah, we can fix Nord Stream 1 and 2, but you won't be getting any gas through it because we're selling the gas elsewhere in the world. And then what does Europe do? Then Europe's going to be going, but hang on, we need energy. Where are we going to get the cheaper energy from? And they're not going to get the cheaper energy. And we've seen farcical situations. We're like even the United States buying Russian oil via, via Sicily. <laughs> and it's some convoluted route through rebadged oil tankers. And why does, ironically, the United States produces light oil and it needs heavy oil? Because they need to mix them. And where does it get heavy oil from? Russia. Iran and Venezuela, the three of the nations, they've done everything trying to destroy them and then going, hang on, we need the heavy energy, the heavy oil. And the reason they need the heavy oil is they have to mix it. Otherwise, the United States has no diesel or jet fuel. We know what that means for the United States. They're in serious trouble without it. Again, no thought process. And also, we've seen ludicrous situations where Russia is shipping LNG to to China and then China sells it to Europe. And China makes a nice percentage on top, and Europe's getting screwed in the process, and they're still buying Russian gas. I mean, this is how farcical it's become, but again, there's no thought process. And Europe needs to understand that once the war's over, and whenever that ends, the ramifications and consequences of this is going to carry on for years to come. It's not just a question of, well, Ukraine wins the war, and that's the end of the consequences, or Russia wins the war, and what's the consequences, and then the end result is. some point in the future, they're probably going to have to go back to the Russians and go, "Well, we need your energy," and Russia's going to turn around and say, "Well, from our perspective, and, and you know, and in the West, we need to start thinking what they're thinking, not what we think they're thinking or doing. They'll turn around and go, "Well, tell us one reason why we should trust you." And they're going to turn around to the West and go, well, well, we don't want dollars or euros because remember what you did to us in 2022. You kicked us out of the markets. You stole our Forex reserves. So forget it. You're going to pay rubles and you're going to have a long-term contract. And there's going to be serious ramifications if you renege on that. And can we trust you? And the answer currently is no. And you know, it's all well and good to have a, maybe a different political establishment in power in Germany. Maybe the European Commission's had a, a complete change of heart, but fundamentally, they, they, these are situations where you're not going to remedy this lack of trust, and the West is not thinking this. They just thought you know, that, you know, that somehow they would get Russia to heal, and they could then have Russia doing what they want Russia to do, and they'll still provide us with the energy in the future, and it'll all work out swimmingly well for us. Well, they should have realized that Russia was never going to be crushed the way they thought it was because first it has a huge amount of resources it's self-sufficient in energy and food it also has done a lot of remedial work to rotate its economy to avoid sanctions since 2014. It also has people who never supported Putin more than they do now. This is reality whether the West agrees it doesn't matter that's that's what it is, and we have to accept that reality we have to accept that the global south actually supports what russia's doing they weren't privately then they support publicly they're going well actually we're neutral on this but their neutrality and how they continue buying russian energy and trading with them proves they're not neutral they're actually just saying that politically and these constantly underestimating russia's capability and the other thing they need to understand in the west is russia's military capability in terms of hypersonic missiles, in terms of its very modern, advanced nuclear arsenal, which is decades in advance of the West. I mean, the West has got a lot of 1950s, 60s nuclear weapons still that are very unstable. They have weapons that that, are, that have been developed in recent years. So people in the West need to start going. Do we seriously think we were going to crush a major nuclear power in the world. You, do you not think if Russia was on the verge of collapse, that it, it hasn't happened and it won't happen, that they may not have retaliated with nuclear war weapons? As a last resort, going, well, you're crushing our nation state. We have to react. No one thought of that. They didn't think, oh, hang on, that could happen. You see all these ludicrous statements. Of, if we'd been at any other point in history with comments from Western leaders back in February and March, we probably would have had World War Three. Fortunately, we won't and we didn't because there's far greater you know, mass destruction like we've never seen is the end result. So cooler heads have gone, oh, no, we we won't allow that to happen. But if this had been, say, at any other point in history in the past, we would have had World War Three because the, the comments were that inflammatory and actually added nothing of value or substance to to the ongoing developments. And Again, it's just one of these situations where people in the West continue to underestimate Russia's capabilities. And, you know, and the mere fact you say this, people go, you're just a Putin apologist. No, this is a statement of fact. Russia has enormous resources. It has enough energy for its own domestic consumption in oil and gas for maybe 200 years and maybe even more in the future because they keep discovering more and more energy in terms of oil and gas deposits. They have enormous resource base, and they're self-sufficient with food. They have enormous fresh water supply. They have everything they need. Unlimited amounts of the minerals required to manufacture weapons. So again, Russia's going to run out of weapons. No, they're not going to run out of weapons. And this is why the West is going in March and April. They're going to be out of weapons soon. And then, what, a few weeks ago, they have to admit This is the greatest barrage we've seen of Russian missile attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. Well, why did you tell us seven months ago they had no weapons? I I mean, again, this is just this ridiculous miscalculation. And at some point, war has to end. There has to be a peace agreement. Who knows how that's going to, to work out. But there is no other way of resolving it. All wars have to end that way. And there has to be an agreement reached. And whether the West likes that or doesn't like it, it's the only way to end this. Otherwise, when does the war end? I mean, because they keep thinking Russia's going to capitulate. Well, they haven't capitulated. And again, listen to what Russia says and take it seriously. You don't have to agree with it. In fact, you might loathe what they're saying, but they've effectively said, if we have to continue fighting this war for years, so be it. That's exactly what we're going to do. Well, actually start going, well, if they're telling the truth, what does that mean? Can we in the West afford to continue fighting this war for years? And if we can't, then what's the risk again of, well, what happens if they end up taking, you know, Nikolaev and Odessa in, in, the, in the South? And they've kind of half hinted in the last few days that's their intention. Well, then they've landlocked Ukraine if they take it. And don't just say that won't happen. If it happens... What does that mean? Then what happens if they go? Okay, are we going to have a peace agreement? And the West goes, no. They go, okay. Well, we'll just take another, uh, you know, oblast, another region. And don't say that can't happen. Just ask ourselves, what happens if it does happen? And start dealing with an outcome that might be sticking everyone's throat. But it's just accept, you know that this is, you know, a realistic proposition. And why I you know, said. As I said, on the February the twenty-fourth, what the sanctions were doing. People went got furious with me. Well, it's proved to be true. I'm only saying things, not because I want it to happen. My job is to say what will happen in the future. And sadly, it has happened. And I don't get any great pleasure in doing it, but that's what I'm supposed to do, and that's why we do what we do to to forecast things and give people unpalatable answers to things they might not want to agree with but at the end of the day reality is reality and we have to deal with it instead of pretending that reality isn't happening and deciding that in fact you know there's there's this alternative reality when it's clearly not playing out and ultimately you know we have to accept there are always two outcomes and we might believe russia will be crushed but if they're not and what happens if they continue to make progress so, and their stated goals, which is always being demilitarization of Ukraine. What does that mean? I mean, it's very clear what it means. Their attitude is we'll destroy the entire Ukrainian military force. And we need to say, well, what happens if they achieve that objective? Or they continue to achieve that objective? While the West is going, it's all about territory. And the Russians are going, No, it's not. And it isn't. So stop listening to ourselves and listen to what they're saying and going well, if they're not really that bothered about territory and it's just demilitarizing ukraine what does that mean and what are the ramifications for the ukrainian people because you know it's it's well and good saying we're defending the freedoms of ukraine's people and yes i agree but you have to also flip that against well if we continue this war, what does that mean for the ukrainian people What's the risk of enormous amounts of Ukrainian military dying? What's the risk to the Ukrainian population because Russia's destroying the infrastructure? What happens if, and even in Kiev, they, they've admitted, you may have to abandon the city? There's a risk of that. Well, what are you going to do with 3 million people? Where do they go? What are the consequences for those people? We need to start thinking about that instead of idealizing an outcome we want to happen. Which, you know, how often in history is these idealistic attitudes never come to pass? And we need to be extremely careful in how we think about what this means. And we're not thinking about that. We're just ideologically coming out with what we expect the outcome to be and and instead of actually dealing with what's happening. And I know why part of this is the case. They're desperate to keep. Western people on board that this war's worth fighting because if they lose the support of the people, then the war's over. But if you start seeing cities like Ukraine potentially, and I stress potentially being abandoned and having to rehome 3 million people, where do they go? People in the West are going, hang on, they're going to start going, hang on, this war's not playing. Why's that happening? Where do you have these people? How do other nations who are suffering economically, financially, how are they going to absorb these people? They can't. And these are the things they just don't think about. And unfortunately, as time's progressing, these risks are growing more and more. And the longer-term consequences are if the war doesn't play out how the West perceives it, that is going to create deep distrust amongst Western people on a level they've never seen towards their own government. And what does that potentially mean? That could have serious ramifications. And we have to avoid that, because the last thing we need is destabilized nations. I mean, we can all disagree with governments and how they operate, but we don't want like complete chaos in Western nations, because that's a serious threat to our own security, our own stability. Again, people don't think of this.
0: One of the big takeaways from what you said here, which I feel like is one of the big takeaways of the year, is this idea of Should there be some kind of peace agreement and Europe wants to reestablish, let's say, European energy, I thought you brought up a really interesting point, which is why should Russia take euros or dollars after what just happened to them? And that would also probably imply, like, if we're ever going to do that, you're going to have to unfreeze our reserves. So it it just seems like a lot of unplausible things would need to happen, which brings us back to our wheelhouse here, which is the metals and gold. I don't know if you saw the story. I assume you did. Uh, It was in Bloomberg maybe a week, a week and a half ago. And they were talking about how there is the record uh, gold buying that happened, I believe, in the third quarter. And it turns out, at least what I understood, was that it was China was the mystery buyer. So can you speak a bit about this theme, this idea of the flows of gold? I mean, we've had Jeffrey Christian on. He says, yeah, it goes from west to east, but then it will go back from east to west afterwards. So what's your take on this whole gold situation globally? To ask you a very big question
1: no it's well no it's it is a big question but it's an extremely important question i mean yes look i've talked for years about the flow of gold from west to east and I, i'm not sure we mentioned it before but i'll mention it here again because uh, i've said it elsewhere and only recently that starting in 2012 for two and a half years 30,000 tons of gold moved from west to china and hong kong that was Essentially, a thousand metric tons a month for 30 months, hence two and a half years. And this process has been going on for a long time. The fact we recently saw, well, we can't account for where this 31 tons or was it 32 tons of gold went, and, and then it went to China, is merely an indication of an ongoing process. It's not some some incredible uh, sort of. Uh, Eureka moment in the gold markets where China's seen the light and, and wants to, you know, suddenly buy more gold. In terms of China's gold production, they produce about 600 metric tons a year and have been doing it for years, and none of that gold leaves the country. I've made the point for years that China has about 40,000 tons of gold, and, uh, roughly. Now, the argument about in, a, in whether that gold goes back to the West, it depends on many factors, because... There's always the the gold price and the price of gold. I mean, currently, I think gold in dollar terms is about $1,780. i yeah, got knocked back a bit overnight, my time or our time. But in a broad sense, you know, it, the question is, is that fair value for an ounce of gold in dollar terms? And I know I don't think it is. And I mean, and we're not here to project the price because I don't do prices. I always say, Eventually, gold and, by extension, silver will achieve true price discovery. That's a statement of fact when the paper markets eventually blow up. And that will be largely caused by the very catalyst of metal leaving the West and heading East, because in the end, it will become a situation where there will be some kind of event, economically, financially, geopolitically, where people who hold metal in the comics in the LBMA want delivery. Now. It's a bit like, I've used the analogy, it's a bit like a bank run. If everyone goes in and demands their money, the bank collapses because it's not sustainable, it's not possible. And the risk is if everyone in masses starts demanding physical gold or silver stored at the COMEX or the LBMA and they can't deliver it, then you get force majeure. Then the credibility of those markets just just falls instantaneously. And at some point, that will happen. Whether it happens next week, next month, I don't care. It's not. That, for me, isn't why you buy gold. It's not constantly looking at the price in fiat terms. It's, a, as I've said, it's an insurance policy against everything. But what's very clear, and it's not just China doing it, you've got nations across the Stan Republics who are buying gold, we've got nations in the Middle East, Qatar's buying it, there's nations in the Far East buying it. We've even got Poland and Hungary who've been buying. And they're not buying it just for the fun of it. They're buying it because they understand that gold is going to play a role in the future in some capacity. Now, people can sit there and deliberate what that is. At this point, it largely doesn't matter. But the Chinese very subtly came out again recently and went gold will be an important component of the financial system in the future. Well, and we have to pay attention to these remarks. It's also why do we think that Moscow has a gold exchange? Why are we seeing in the UAE they're trying to open refineries all around the world? I mean, these are major developments because it will have a future. Now, the question is, if we presuppose this drain, and when I say the drain from west to east, it doesn't mean there's not an ounce in the west. It doesn't mean that, you know, that I'm, yes, I'm, everyone knows I own gold. So it's not like I suddenly go, where's my gold and silver, got. It's just available now. When the West, suddenly in the future, because financial markets evolve, now, however, this is going to happen, where gold becomes a component of it, and, you know, let's use the BRICS as an example. They've talked about commodities-backed currency they'll use, but, you know, with likely a component of gold in it. There might be a situation where the Chinese and the Russians back their currency with gold, and people who say they won't don't understand what China and Russia are doing or why they would do this. there may come a point when the West goes, we need gold. And the Chinese will turn around to them and go, so you want some gold now? You mean, you know, all this gold we've been moving east for, for a decade plus? Well, here's the point. Yeah, you can have some of that back. But you know what? We're repricing gold. And let's just, for argument's sake, and this is not because it will necessarily be this price. It could be any price, but just for ease of discussion. Chinese decide that they're going to back the yuan by repricing gold in dollar terms, just for argument's sake, of 10,000. I'm not saying it will happen, but let's just say that was the snow. Then the West's going to go, oh, so we have to pay $10,000 an ounce to buy the gold. Otherwise, we can't have any. Yes, that's what we're, exactly what we're telling. So, yeah, at some point, there might be some gold. But if the West won't pay the price, they're not going to get it back. And that's where you start to see price discovery happening, because. Those who hold the physical metal will be dictating the price. That's the, the supply and the demand. If there's a demand and someone's got the supply, they'll, they'll say, well, you can only have it at this price. So I don't doubt that at some point there might be redistribution of metal to some degree around the world. But also, if you want true price discovery with regards to, to gold, then you're going to, the West is also going to have to change the market. Otherwise, nobody's going to want to trade with the West. Again, it's back to trust. If you can go and trade with markets in the East who, if you buy an ounce of gold, for argument's sake, it's backed by a physical ounce. But in the West, going, out, on, I'm not too sure. Because remember, they have this force majeure problem. And maybe, you know, we, we can't trust those markets anymore. So that has to radically change. And then then the other argument also is going to be in the future is, from the east perspective, is, well, OK, if, if we, you want to be part of this market, are you going to join our market? I mean, because, you know, we, we've got these established markets. What happens to the Western market? How's gold going to be priced in future? How does this radically change the markets? But, yeah, at some point, the West will need gold back. I don't dispute that. But I don't think it's a question of this natural ebb and flow. It's not like the East spent years buying all this gold and then go, actually, we've decided we're going to sell it back to you for, for you know, $2,000 an ounce. It's not going to work that way. They're buying it because they know what's going to happen in the future and how financial markets are going to radically change. And they don't care whether the West agrees with it. They're going, well, we're the global South. We're 88% of the population. We'll do things how we want to do it. If you want to be part of that, great. But if you don't, well, fine. We don't care because we're going to reprice gold. And you know what's going to happen? Any available metal in the West, it's people are going to go, I'm arbitraging this. I'm going to buy it in the West for this price. I'm going to sell it for um, that price times whatever. Let's say it, it was 10,000, just for argument's sake. So. And we're, we're, yeah, we're going, to, we're going to arbitrage it. So whatever gold's left in the West is going to head east anyway, because people will see it as an arbitrage opportunity. And the other thing is, from China's perspective, if they want to back the Yuan with gold, then they're going to set a price that they want to back it at. And, I mean, this idea they don't have enough gold, A, is not true, and B, you just set the price of gold to back your currency. This isn't rocket science. It's simple maths. So if they set the price and I have an idea what they're going to do, and I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want to influence people and what their perception of gold is. But by all accounts, they've got an idea what they want to back in that. Then they're going to say, well, that's the new price. And that's why if they do that and they make that announcement, what's it going to do to the West? It'll just blow everything up. The dollars toast the minute they do that. And I've said this before, in 2016, early 2016, they were planning on announcing a gold-back UN and then the Americans went, well, if you do that, it's a declaration of war. They went, okay, mm-hmm. we're not doing that, but the world's changed now. And why I come back to the point in 2018 when Putin made his speech to Russian lawmakers and told the world we have these weapons. They did that to say to the world and, and the United States Sorry, that your idea you're just going to threaten nations with war anymore is over. It's not going to work anymore because we've just told you. And and by the way, we've subsequently shown you our hypersonic missiles so you can see what they can actually do. And the, the Pentagon had an aneurysm scene. So the world's changing, but China has stated that intention in the past with regards to, to backing their currency with gold. Now, maybe the world's changed slightly, may have a different perspective on this because. Things are evolving very rapidly, and we're seeing things. Perhaps even two or three years ago, we might not have anticipated. But the, the Ukraine war's accelerated things, but it's led to significant developments in terms of, like, the BRICS. I mean, we always envisaged the BRICS would grow and become BRICS Plus, but how do you absorb those nations if you're going to back individual currencies with commodities or gold? Or, what's the percentage of that in in a BRICS basket? And and maybe you know things, attitudes have changed with that. And if you bring in the Iranians into that, what does that mean, Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, the Saudis into it, then it changes the perspective. And and therefore, we have to sort of park our thoughts what we thought it might have been because it might now be significantly different. I mean, I've been asked elsewhere, what do I think it means? And I've said, I can give you 50 permutations, but it might not be correct. And at the end of the day, at this point, it doesn't matter. We know in a broad sense what it means. The detail isn't really worthy of discussion because it doesn't ultimately benefit us to, to try and dissect how that might be in the future. And what percentage of this BRICS currency is in the ruble, is in the yuan, uh, is in the rupee, et cetera, et cetera. We, we can't determine it. But certainly, in terms of gold markets, and by extension silver, look at the Indians. They have bought you know, nearly 12,000 metric tons of silver by the end of this year. About a third of global production. I mean, that's astonishing. But again, that puts pressure on Western markets. And if there are Western markets who, for every ounce of physical metal, they've got who knows how many ounces of paper, that potentially starts to put stresses in those markets. So, yeah, in in a very broad sense, uh, the West still largely hasn't worked out why gold's important. And ironically, institutions and governments and central banks will only really start to understand it when the price of gold—and I've always used gets to two and a half, three thousand dollars an ounce. That if, when I stress, if that happens, then everyone's going to be wanting to pile into gold because then they won't have any confidence. in it. at the moment, institutions largely look at it and go, "Well, what's the problem?" There isn't a problem. They don't. They don't look at the broader issue of how the financial system's completely being destroyed, how economies are being destroyed, how QE zero interest rate policy is wrecked everything, and is everything's totally unsustainable and it can't continue. But from the perspective, and they're looking at going, well, there isn't a problem. Well, well, look, look at the Dow. It's fine. You know, look at look at all the metrics we look at. Not, it isn't a problem. I mean. It's, we can manage inflation, we can just raise interest rate without going hang on. What have you had since 2008? Zero interest rate policy. Do you understand that your whole market your whole economy, your whole financial system is predicated on endless cheap credit, and now you're going to issue credit that isn't zero interest rate policy anymore. It's x percent higher. How are you going to to manage your, your you know it's like the United States? its, it's budget deficit is going to grow? And we're seeing this. Their tax receipts are falling. What a surprise, because the economy is cratering. The federal budget is going through the roof. And it will continue to do that. And so how do you think this is sustainable? But of course, they just try to pretend that reality isn't happening. It's like, well, our financial bubble's reality. This economic reality that's going on out there, well, we'll just pretend it doesn't exist. Because look, all our metrics go. Unemployment's really low. The job market's but hang on what about all the people who've left the job market in the united states which is growing growing and growing you don't include them in your uh, statistical data etc cetera, etc cetera. all the things we know and understand but at some point reality is going to smack them all between the eyes and then that's the point when people are going to go hang on we don't have trust in in fiat we don't have trust in in markets we don't have trust in credit markets we don't have trust in any what are we going to look for and the logical argument is they want to buy assets real tangible assets whatever people perceive that to be and that can mean many things to many different people and we're not quite at that point but if you but in the east they've long since grasped that because they've understood the west is a financial system and economies are completely unsustainable and therefore on that basis something has to give and we'd rather be positioning ourselves, Differently to what you're doing. When you know, because if you know something's going to happen, it's like if you know that your house is going to burn down, then you will make sure you've got insurance. You don't wait like the West does till the house is burned down and then go, can we have some insurance on there? Because no one's going to give them any insurance.
0: Another takeaway here for us from this year is it's almost like the dollar only works as a reserve currency as long as people want it. And I feel like this year. We're starting to see, with what happened with the freezing of the Russian gold reserves, it seems to me that there is now skepticism. And people could say, well, you know, again, this is conspiracy and everything. But it almost doesn't matter. As long as there is a story out there that people don't trust the dollar anymore, and which would only make logical sense if you're someone like Saudi Arabia or China, or especially Russia— you're going to look for alternatives. So to me, it it seems like, again, one of the big takeaways for the year is a real crack in the status of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, which is still playing out and will take who knows how long to play out. But and just to expand on that, you look at the credibility of the LME, you know, with the big nickel issue, which is still not resolved. I was seeing a story in the last week or two. It's still playing out with the nickel market. And I can't remember who was reporting it. I mentioned it on the program. There was a commentator that was saying, you know, China's nickel price, unfortunately, is only internal, so we can't use it. But otherwise, we would use that as the nickel price was the takeaway. In in other words, that the LME nickel price is still kind of broken, people are saying. So, you know, the larger Kind of issue here is it's back to trust and credibility the West credibility in financial markets is getting some serious questioning here, legitimate or not and, and it almost doesn't matter. The questioning is happening, and that matters more.
1: yeah, and just another example is why do you think China's dumping hundreds of billions of trash money because of a lack of trust and also because they're going well. I mean, you know, we need to get out of this paper. We need to get out of dollar-denominated assets, etc. And, you know, it's not a wild stab in the dark to suggest that, you know, perhaps part of the treasuries they dumped was to buy this additional gold. I mean, this is, you know, it's a logical process. And I think the problem with the idea of the dollar is, I mean, is where I think people go wrong is they perceive there has to be an alternative world reserve currency to replace the dollar. Now, if you think like that, then logically you go, well, there isn't a serious contempt, And as things stand, you could argue that's actually not a flawed assessment. Now, what they don't realize is there doesn't need to be a world reserve currency in the future. You don't need that. It it's becomes an irrelevance. And Russia's proved, A, you don't need to trade in dollars. I mean, it can trade with China on the basis of rubles and yuan in joint trade. And it works perfectly fine. There's no dollars involved. Why does there have to be dollars? Because Russia has, can sell energy, and Russia can sell goods to China. It's you know, And, and therefore, it's quite acceptable for both nations to have rubles and the yuan. And look at, and India's another great example of this, where they're going, well, we're trading in, with Russia in rubles and rupees. People are going, they can't do that. Well, yes, because Russia sells them energy, and increasingly, and, and they're looking to to obviously reduce the imbalance between exports and imports. India is looking at exporting a whole new sort of finished industrial tools, for example, maybe parts or whatever else they want to export. And they're going, so it works. Well, there's not a huge imbalance. So we can trade in local currencies. What's the problem? And it's like people are going, Saudi Arabia and China, they'll never have a Petro Yuan. Well, they already are very quietly, even in very small amounts, that had been trading in a Petro Yuan for a number of years. There was, uh, I think it was 2018, there was a line item in the Saudi Aramco balance sheet which showed it. Not very obvious, but it was there. So the argument is they can't do this. They're always going to have to trade in dollars. No, they don't because here's the thing. China says to, to the Saudis, right, uh, we'll, we want your oil, and uh, we will pay it in RMB. They go, okay, that's fine, because we know that's fully convertible into gold, even though people in the West don't believe it, but it is. And the alternative is, China, you know, we'd love you to come and invest in our country. We have this big Saudi Vision 2030 project that needs huge amounts of investment. Why don't you come and invest in our country? Oh, and by the way, why don't you sell us debt in, oh, what a surprise, R&B. <laughs> and Saudi's going, yeah, because we've got all this R&B, so we could spend it on that. Or, you know, yeah, we'd also be interested, maybe we can we can open some, some businesses in China, which China's going to want to do. They're both going to do. And then you start to set up this huge market. Well, it makes sense. Why would they want to trade in dollars? They already have uh, currency swaps between the real and the yuan. That's been established since 2016. So you're going, well, this makes sense. We, we don't need to use the dollar. We don't need to use SWIFT. It works beautifully between us. So there's another example of two nations not trading in the dollar. And look, the real, the ruble and the yuan and the rupee, they're not world reserve currencies. They don't need to be. We've just got sucked into this strange idea that you have to have a world reserve currency because some nation has to run deficit. No, they don't. The United States didn't used to run deficits. It's abused the market and goes, well, we can run deficits without realizing in the end you can't, and that's why it's going to blow up. But you don't have to run deficits. That was just an excuse for the US to go, here's a bunch of worthless paper, give us a bunch of dollars, and we can spend it on what we want to spend. And now the world's going, hang on, we don't like that idea. And actually, we've got alternatives. And and because you cut Russia out of SWIFT, the Russian central bank, and tried to crush Russia's banking system, do you know what? We actually really would like to stop using dollars. So nations in the global south are going, hang on, like Bangladesh is talking to China, going, well, let's trade in the yuan. Angola's going, let's trade in the yuan with the Chinese. And Russia's currency has proved to be, far more resilient than, than Westerners realized, even though they should have realized. And okay, the argument then is if it has resilience, well, yeah, we'll 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 trade with in rubles with, with Russia in the future. And Russia's currency will become stronger and, and more internationally used because Russia's proved we can insist if you want our energy, you have it in rubles or you don't get it. Well hang on, we also sell other commodities. Well we're going to start pricing it in rubles. Will you buy it in rubles? Yeah, because we actually think your currency has some, some stability. And in the future, if they back it officially with commodities or with gold, the nations are going to go, this is a reliable currency. And here's the thing. China and Russia are going to go, we live within our means. We didn't do QE zero interest rate policy. Everyone goes about China's going to blow up because of its debt. They don't understand that internal debt's irrelevant. China's external debt is minuscule, so it's not an issue. Like China, one state-owned enterprise owns another state-owned enterprise. Twenty billion yuan. So what? That just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. So the point of all this is that's why people are are misled. They also think that you know the the multipolarity is just birthing now, or is dead on arrival. They don't realize it's been in, in place for uh, uh, initially 20 years ago. That's why China joined the World Trade Organization, because then it knew, well, if we're going to be part of this multipolar world in the future, we need to be in the WTO. We need to be able to sell our goods to the world within. OK, we're not defending the WTO, but that was the rationale. That was the thinking. That's why they're doing things the way they are. So it's not about replacing the dollar. It's just increasingly as more and more nations trade in non dollar terms and and more and more energy sold in non dollar terms, the dollar becomes relatively irrelevant. It's starting to have built in obsolescence because if in the end the global south all trades with each other in non dollar terms, well, how relevant is the dollar at that point? It's not going to disappear completely, but it becomes irrelevant as a world reserve currency because the vast bulk of international trade, et cetera, will be conducted in non-dollar terms. And nations go well, yeah, we might trade with the United States in the future, but they may start going, but hang on, we don't want your dollars. Because remember what you did to Russia in 2022. We haven't forgotten that. We're not going to forget that. So again, these are all the factors in place. So the idea that the dollar has to be replaced is just not going to happen. And what a surprise. China's consistently stated we don't want to be a world reserve currency. There doesn't need to be. We just want to internationalize the yuan." And then it's, well, if they don't open up all their markets, that's not possible. Well, of course it's possible. It's just a like, here's the thing. We just highlighted why it's possible. And yes, China will open up its markets and, and internationalize the yuan that way. But if you have two nations who work together and trust each other and have win-win cooperation, They'll trade in each other's currency. And what China does in a broad sense with its financial markets is not relevant. It's just a simple agreement. I mean, why are we overcomplicating our perspective as how nations can cooperate? It's because in the West, we just don't believe that's possible because the United States' attitude. When do we ever hear the U.S. going, this is win-win cooperation, it's trust? We never hear these words. The U.S. doesn't even understand what that means. So if you're going to try and bully the world into doing things, then, of course, you're going to go, if we bully you, you have to use the dollar. Whereas if you actually become an adult and work in in how the world can operate in the future, you go, world reserve currency is not relevant. Yeah, We have a trust agreement. And, and we're going to, you know, if you want yuan-denominated debt, we're going to give it you at a nice sensible price. and you'll be able to repay it and we're going to use the the r you know this rmb to buy goods in your country and maybe in the future saudi and china will trade in reals and china might get the reals and they might just mix and match it but we have to start accepting this is the new reality and it's perfectly capable of working and countries actually realize that the sum of our parts is infinitely greater than the zero sum game mentality of the united states and at the moment too many people in the West just don't understand it. They don't believe it. They think China's trying to take over the world and, 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 and impose its uh, its will on on the on the West. And we and will force the West to do all the things that people in the West think China does to the Chinese people, which they don't. And a big shock for the West was the pandemic because Chinese people started to get a bit fed up of uh, zero covid policy which i agree is not sensible it's absolutely ludicrous and then yeah there's some west trying to fuel these protests to make it worse what did the chinese do very quickly they went okay yeah all right we're gonna have to change policy and they made some excuse that well we've suddenly discovered all these things why we can downgrade it from a pandemic no because they actually listened to the people and went okay we're gonna have to stop this and the west went hang on I thought they were this dictatorship. They never listened to the people. And they listened to the people and change policy. And then they go, but they didn't do that in the West. And it's causing this mass confusion in people's minds. And the reason they're confused, because they don't understand what China's like. So again, you know, China isn't trying to take the world away. China's not a perfect country, but you know what? The Chinese people like things the way they are. And if they didn't, you'd see massive protests to change things. And the pandemic showed that. That's one example. So this is, this is why the West just needs to stop looking at the world through its own perspective. And it's not about agreeing what China does or Russia does. Just understand. They have a different way of thinking. They do things differently. And they're going to do things in a multipolar world in a very different way. And we might just have to accept. Well, if they succeed and the rest of the world goes along with them, Which increasingly they are. What does that mean for us and what in the now and in the future? And some point do we have to embrace multipolarity and and realise that if we don't, we risk being isolated. And the West needs to start to realise that being isolated is not some pipe dream or some impossibility. The risk is if we keep behaving the way they are we are and antagonizing. The global south they'll increasingly go well we don't want anything to do with you because what have you got to offer us we're self-sufficient we're going to develop all these nations we'll have all the commodities we can have energy security food security we can build our own nations build our own multipolar world and we don't need you you you've got nothing to offer us so fine and then we won't have to be worried about your sanctions we'll be strong enough to be able to to defend our own sovereignty our own nations we won't be at risk of regime change at the risk of uh, having our economies deliberately collapsed etc etc that's the fundamental shift and the west still doesn't grasp this because its philosophy is there's only one way and it's our way you can't do it any other way it's not possible because we're the arbiter of everything good bad and 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 how things should be implemented no one else can have an alternative that's not possible because no one can think better than we can think well maybe they need to start thinking that's not actually reality anymore.
0: well it's very interesting what you bring up here this idea just as we wrap up here uh, that you know china doesn't need to replace the us dollar and i was thinking to myself for china a win you could say in their mind, might just be getting rid of the US dollar as a reserve currency, but not necessarily needing to replace it. Why should anybody have this, you know, so-called exorbitant privilege? Why should one country be able to print to the sky and have this reserve currency status and no one else does? So just by weakening this reserve currency status, in my view, is a clear win. For China, and they don't need to replace it. And I just thought it was so ironic. I don't know if you saw that story of China bringing the US to the World Trade Organization for the Trump era tariffs on aluminum and steel. And I just thought it was like, you know, again, it doesn't even matter what happens. Probably not much of an outcome is going to happen because apparently Trump weakened the WTO to such a degree that you can no longer make an appeal or something like this. so So it's not really worth anything. But I think it weakens the WTO because China can just go, look at how worthless this institution is. China is bringing the U.S. to the WTO this time and they're losing and we still can't do anything. It's almost like, uh, you know, Chinese philosophy or something like it's just the weakening of the other side will bring about your own win, so to speak.
1: Yeah, I think there's an important point, though. China doesn't want to see the United States destroyed or weakened. Because that creates instability. China, and ironically Russia's philosophy with the United States, is be a great nation amongst equals. Let's work together for mutual benefit and cooperation. The fact the United States is incapable of doing that means they're going, well, we're not going to tolerate, and we'll continue individually and collectively to do what's in the best interest of the rest of the world, the global set. And that's the philosophy, the consequences of doing that, of course, are very damaging to the United States. But the US is inflicting its own pain by saying, well, this is how we're going to do things. This is how we're going to implement policy decisions. And it's my way or the highway, zero sum game. You're either with us or you're against us. But ultimately, it's not good for the world to have a very unstable United States for a very obvious reason. Okay, I'm not suggesting nuclear war happens, but it's it's a major nuclear power. It has a nation of 300 million plus people. If massive instability happens, that's not good for the people of the United States or the United States itself and its standing. It just needs to learn that there's a new way of doing things, the new way is coming, and the sooner we integrate with that, and instead of constantly trying to say, It's a competition. You're a competitor. The the definition of that is we have to win. We have to win at any cost because, you know, to use the World Cup analogy, when you play the match, you want to win. It's all about winning. Well, the world isn't about winning. It's about cooperating and realizing the United States can be significantly stronger domestically and internationally. It can regain its trust if it joins the world and goes this was an insane policies we've been adopting for decades. There has to be a change. But you know, the problem is try selling that to the American people. That's gonna be a big challenge as well. Because a lot of American people think it's my way or the highway. You know, we're the, the chosen nation, we're the exceptional nation and you know, and, and it's all about what we think and not what anyone else thinks. So there has to be an enormous shift change, but but certainly it has to happen because you know, the West has reached the end of the line, and it's reached the end of the line because we've reached saturation of debt. We've reached saturation in consumption. We can't be competitive anymore because we pay people too high wages. And and there's an important point to make about this. It's what your purchasing power is with the wages you earn. I mean, you can earn as $200,000 a year, but if a loaf of bread costs $1,000, it's meaningless. <laughs> You know, I'm, using, I'm exaggerating to, to illustrate a point. So, we you know, where do we go? We can't be competitive anymore on the world stage. We've maxed out our credit card, so to speak. We can't consume anymore because we, well, I mean, what are we going to do? Keep throwing away white goods and buying new ones every year? I mean, it's reached the point of absurdity, and, and we've abused our position in the world. The United States has abused the dollar, and since 2008, we've abused the financial system and created asset bubbles that will always have to blow eventually. And now now we've moved the inflation into the real world because we just printed money thinking there were no consequences. Well, you know, this is unsustainable. So at some point, we have to think, how do we function in a world where we can pay Chinese wages? People can afford to live on those wages. How do we attract investment worth the trust? How do we rebuild ourselves industrially? What does that mean? What What are the future challenges? Do we need Chinese support in the future? Do we need Russian energy? Do we need Chinese and Russian commodities? Do we need the global South? And we're not thinking about this, but we need to start seriously understanding that we in the West are vulnerable. We are extremely vulnerable now. And instead of pretending that the world revolves around us, start realising that the world revolves around all of us and we're all part of it and we need to make serious changes. But ultimately, in 10, 20 years, we'll turn around and the Americans will go, why the hell didn't we do this a long time ago? Look, America's never been a more prosperous nation and and the world trusts us again. And where it was seen as being responsible partners. So if there is a problem in the world, people will come to us and go, okay, we need you as part of this solution instead of going, like they do now. We don't want you part of anything because we don't trust you. We're always back to that word, it's trust. And I've said this for a long time when a nation abuses its position in the world to the point that huge swathes of the world don't trust them anymore, then it's over. And trust can take decades uh, or whatever to gain, but it can be lost in the blink of an eye. And that's an also a fundamental point that the world doesn't realise. It can try and convince us all that China's this and Russia's that, but people in the West need to go, well, why does the rest of the world trust them? Why does the rest of the world not have a problem? Strip out the you know the, the nonsense about China and all these China's creating debt traps all around the world. Go talk to these nations. They go, No, they haven't. Talk to the Sri Lankans, they go, No, there isn't a debt trap. This is not true. You know we need to start listening to to the nations themselves and going well why do they keep signing trade deals with China? why is all this chinese investment going into these countries why do these nations not have this problem why is the the world not rejected russia what are we missing instead of just going no it's true they they, they are rejecting them oh hang on they're not no they are We're just trying to convince ourselves of the outcomes we want to believe and i I've made this point for years. I discuss the multipolarity and what China and Russia are actually doing, because that's what's happening. It's not a question of going, well, I'm telling you this because I believe in what they're doing or I'm supporting them. We're just stating facts. But the truth is they're offering an alternative that increasing parts of the world want and want to embrace. And it doesn't matter whether we like it or agree with it this is just reality and it stops living in denial about what's really happening and accept that, uh, you know, at some point we're going to have to embrace this and we're going to have to make some really tough choices and um, in how that actually happens. But, you know, global South nations having to make tough choices, the Saudis and the Iranians are now going through reproachment. it could take a long time, but they're realizing they have to, you know, it's better for them to to work together and cooperate and learn to trust each other, rather than being adversaries, which is largely being created by the West anyway. So there are enormous challenges all over the world. How do you get rid of corrupt governments in Africa? Okay, largely put in by the West to make Africa a vibrant continent. There are massive challenges, but people are making strides forward to do this. And in the West, we're just sat there going, "No, it's business as usual." It's still the 1980s in China and Russia and the global south. You know, remember we're the dominant superpower. You know, this is how it's always been, and it will always be that way. But we know in history, all empires eventually collapse. And they collapse because they're arrogant, they're ignorant, and they treat the very people that made that empire with total disdain. When you do all those things, you're doomed. And the other thing that kills an empire is they just sit there and rest on their laurels and go, we're the greatest. We don't have to do anything. If you want to keep going, and this is the challenge for China, is they keep having to reinvent themselves and keep progressing and realizing the world's moving at this fast pace. If we don't move with it, then China will crumble into obscurity. That's the challenge for all nations in the future, to keep evolving keep adapting doing it in a way that they don't upset the rest of the world in the process it's difficult but it's it's virtually impossible at the moment for the us because their mindset i mean in their very dna it's not to do any of that but they're going to have to do it because if they don't and this carries on and people will go this is impossible but it's it's like all the other things that were impossible that are now happening it could risk total isolation where effectively the rest of the world even the europeans will just abandon them and go we don't want anything to do with you and that's that is a genuine risk and we need to start accepting that instead of denying i mean like i said i said publicly six years ago saudi will rotate east to the chinese and the russians are people where you're insane rubbish that will never happen you're talking garbage you need to up your meds and all the other comments and here we are it's happened so stop denying these things that are going to happen and claiming they're impossible. And the U.S. risks falling into that category. And the next few years will be the determining factor as to whether the world does isolate them or the world starts to embrace them. And we want the world to embrace them. You know, nothing would please me more to see a reliable, trustworthy, strong, for all the right reasons, United States. It'd be great for the world. And it'd be lovely for us to do these interviews and talk about the great things the US is doing domestically and in the world. Nothing would please me more. But at the moment, we're a million miles away from that. And the question is, what will change the US's attitude? And at some point, something will, but that in itself could be a major destabilizing event in the United States itself and by extension for the rest of the world. And I'm not talking about World War III, I'm just saying it could create ripples. And those ripples could become a major problem, maybe more so for for Europe or its allies or the sort of Western world, less the global South, but particularly domestically. And I would be very concerned currently in the United States that the nation's never been more divided on political grounds. And the US people need to realize that politics is their current political structure is not the answer. They have to find an alternative way. And and learn to 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 realize that collectively, they have a strong future, but if they're at war with each other for a whole bunch of reasons, the United States is never going to be
0: able to become a great nation amongst equals. Just to add to your point of the distrust of the global south with the west, why are these nations rejecting the IMF? Like when Sri Lanka needs money and it's having, you know, going bankrupt, you still get the sense they don't want to deal with the imf they're talking to china about getting loans you hear in indonesia you know where they're trying to do their opec style nickel cartel you hear the them coming out saying you know don't follow the model of the latin americans we know how that works out when we try that model that the west as they specifically said you know you know encourages us to do we have to become more like taiwan where we're more independent, where the world needs us. And that is the model we need to follow. So just as a final question here, as we wrap up this very long interview, and thank you for your time, Paul. Oh, it's a uh, Where are we with BRICS Plus uh, as far as, like, you know, what's your latest thoughts on how this is going? It does seem to be getting... Some kind of momentum, you know, more than a dozen countries are looking to join. What have you seen? Uh, sometimes it gets relegated to conspiracy theory, the, you know, this idea of the currency that they're making. Just as a final question, uh, where are we with BRICS Plus?
1: Yeah, for sure. There's at least a dozen nations want to join, not just the Saudis, the, the Iranians, and Argentina. They've submitted formal applications, Algeria, Egypt, et cetera. So sure, they want to join it. And yes, there, there's been ongoing discussions about a BRICS currency for years. And it's, again, one of those things. It's a lot more mature. But as I've just highlighted, you know, the, the the position of how BRICS is going to evolve in the future is changing perspectives. Ukraine wars change perspectives. And, and therefore, ultimately, there will be a BRICS currency. But the first thing with BRICS was to say, well... Let's all trade in local currencies, which they are. They starting to increasingly do so with each other. And therefore, yes, the BRICS will gather momentum. And, and the whole plan is we can trade with each other and we can use a single currency, but you know, we don't have to necessarily trade within the BRICS in just, you know, it, this isn't a second stone. It could be you know, Russia and China will trade with each other, not within BRICS. They'll just use the yuan and ruble. But it's something that nations will be able to join, they'll be able to trade with each other under the terms of, and you know, at some point there'll probably be some free trade agreement or some trade agreement that, that's agreed, and they can work together economically, they can work together financially in bilateral, multilateral trade, they can you know, also enhance the organisation maybe from a security perspective that bolts into the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation, but Last year, I said the BRICS has been seen as a bit of a white elephant. You know, not a lot seems to be happening. There were some things happening, but yes, it was the perennial underachiever to some extent. Ironically, I thought this year would be when it would explode, but I didn't <laughs> expect it on the basis of, again, Ukraine war, which has been a big driver of it. But for sure, it's a way of, you know, there's a BRICS development bank, so new development banks, so people can take loans, countries can take loans out purview of the IMF, et cetera, which is Hugely beneficial. It will be trade conducted outside SWIFT, and that can link into the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which are many even Western nations are part of. And it's tying all these these alliances together. And nations, yes, will want to join. But you know, then the question is, if they do join, what does that mean in a broader context? I mean, if you're going to have a BRICS currency, what you do every time a nation joins, you go, well, we'll have to adjust the basket of currencies, or The percentage of the the yuan, etc. that's not feasible. It's not reality. So there needs to be an understanding, but for sure, the BRICs will will evolve like any other alliance, like the ASEAN, and they are fundamentally based on trade, in finance, and in economic terms, but also it will be utilized for, as we said, trading in non-dollar terms. It will utilize platforms outside SWIFT. It will utilize a currency that, Has substance to it. It's backed by tangible assets. It's real. It won't be a currency that will be abused like the dollar. Because if we've never learned more than today that you need to live within your means and not beyond your means, then I don't know when we're ever going to learn that lesson. But that then encourages innovation. So these nations can pool resources and therefore they can start to. Arguably, as the BRICS grows, like you just said, with Indonesia looking at kind of an OPEC arrangement from their own perspective with metals, they could go, hang on, we're all part of BRICS, so we could start pricing, I don't know, oil and uh, gas in in the BRICS currency. And people will go, I'll buy in that because it's backed by commodities. So it gives it some internationalization as well. China's not going to go, I don't agree with this. They don't care. It's not a problem. It's not about, again, a world reserve currency. But you imagine if you had 20 nations in BRICS and they start to issue contracts for you in in oil, gas, or other commodities priced in the BRICS currency. And what happens to the dollar? The dollar starts to become more and more irrelevant. And collectively, they can then have true price discovery. They can have a situation where supply and demand is really net rather than the Western paper markets, that the commodities that are completely abused. And even oil now has got to the point it's absurd. The amount of abuse to try and beat the price down is embarrassing, as the Saudis rightly pointed out. So that then circumvents Western financial markets. And the global South's going, hang on, we're, we're happy to pay this price because you know it's based on supply and demand. And they can increase the supply if they think prices is, is getting too high. So they can manipulate, an inverted commas, the price in a beneficial way. They won't allow it to become completely manipulated by the West. And, and therefore, they're at the mercy of the West because, hang on, remember, you always have to buy everything in dollar-denominated contracts those days have gone. So it's a big ongoing process, but it's certainly made some big steps this year. It's perfectly understandable why nations want to join. But it will be a lot more, I think, in the future than uh, I think it will be a security apparatus as well. It will be an apparatus that, that encourages innovation, technological innovation. It will be something which will be very much about because global South is big about people-to-people exchanges, cultural exchanges. So, you know, nations like in the West do know why. People culturally are different in other countries. And it isn't a problem, it's just the way they are. And that builds trust in nations. And people going to other countries helps to break down a lot of these barriers. So it has an enormous uh, potential in all manners of, of industrial sectors. And where, you know, telecommunications, e commerce, new technologies, renewable energy, which actually works like the West thinks it can work. How are we going to balance that with, with oil and gas? We we can create food security for the global south. We won't need to rely on who cares what the West is doing anymore. It becomes irrelevant. The IMF, the World Bank, you know, we don't need you. And if you want to be part of this new revolution, then you're going to have to change. Otherwise, you'll die, like all the rest of these institutions. Because we've set up comparable institutions, that means we don't need you anymore. And why should we need you? Because you've abused your position since Bretton Woods, effectively. So, yeah, it's very much an evolving process, but it's, it's not a unique alliance. It's not going to be like NATO or something like that, very dictatorial. Nations are free to join and nations are free to, to lead. You know, but you can reap benefits uh, collectively individually and and you know and then they can pull resources pull the commodities they've got and go okay we've we've been beaten up by the west for decades hang on we actually have some commodities or you know what we're a great place to invest in why don't you come and build some industry in our country and maybe we've got some commodities that we can you know we can sell and and suddenly these impoverished nations are seeing a way out of Dare I say it, the Western debt trap of of completely subjugating, and, and this is what makes these, like the BRICS and the ASEAN and, and other alliances, very attractive. And also because they they feel secure, they feel well, the West can't come in and just cripple us. They can't, you know, push austerity on us and destroy our nation, and then come in and seize our assets. We actually can utilize our assets in a way that benefits our country, and this is building. Poles, this is the multipolar world. So how does Africa benefit? How does Asia benefit? How does South America benefit? How does the Middle East benefit? And then hopefully eventually, how does Europe and Britain and the United States benefit? When eventually someone with a brain cell in their head goes, do you know what? We had a good run at this. Yeah, we screwed up. Let's just admit we've really made a you know, a, a meal out of this, we've, we've made some bad decisions, spectacularly bad decisions. Okay, it's time to change. And at some point, this will happen. And at some point, we'll see things that we never believed in history could happen. And it, because it's just an evolutionary process, and, uh, and the sooner it happens, the better.
0: Paul, thank you for joining us today on this week's edition of the Northern Miner Podcast. This was a wonderful review looking back on this year, I think we hit many of the major themes and topics. And I think trust kind of has all come back to trust. And, you know, the West is, it's calling card to the rest of the world for decades, if not centuries, was our financial markets are more trustworthy. And, you know, you get the sense that as trust is lost, so is that world that it kind of came out of. So anyway, so if people want to learn more, About the Serious Report, what should they do? Okay, well, obviously,
1: we're very active on Twitter. That's at the Serious Report. That's on a near daily, well, pretty much daily basis. We're also, we've kind of recently reactivated our website. So there's some articles we put on there and we put all the interviews. We've done quite a lot recently and we'll keep putting some content on that, but predominantly. We have a podcast subscription series, which is $4.75 a month or if you subscribe for a year you get a month free so it's $52.75 if my maths is correct and unfortunately we had to go subscription based because we couldn't monetize it. This basically continues to show how the multipolar world's been developing and we tell people things years in advance of when they happen or why this is an important development and we also highlight the sadly ongoing demise of unipolarity. So we do five podcasts a week equivalent, which is about an hour and 40 minutes, roughly a week. And it's very intense. It's very dense. But what's a be better to You know, we use as few words as possible to emphasize as many important things as possible. So we keep it waffle free, as I like to refer to it. And if people wish to subscribe, then we very much appreciate that because obviously you're supporting what we're doing. But I think we've done a decent job at it and we've been, you know, we've successfully explained things from both perspectives and how the world's coexist and exist in And we will obviously continue to do that. And that's basically, and if people want to get in touch, we've got a contact page. If you want to ask questions about this or something else, please do so. We're very happy to, to respond to you.
0: Excellent. So that is theseriousreport.com. Paul, thank you once again for joining us for another fascinating interview. Best wishes this holiday season,
1: and obviously to you and obviously all your listeners as well.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that marathon interview on the big topics the big takeaways of 2022 so let me just reach out to thank you dear listener for joining us this year i hope you have a wonderful christmas and a happy holidays from all of us here at the northern minor thank you for your support and we wish you all the best and look forward to a wonderful time together next year we will have shows next week of course and i will see you then want to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory share it with your friends until next week take care